You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hi, y'all. We are back with another episode of Tigress. And again, I'm here in studio with my beautiful, beautiful sisters. Say hey, y'all. Hi. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourselves? My name's Ameo Komodo. I'm the middle. I'm Isa. I'm the youngest. She's the baby. And today we're going to be talking about something that is definitely a heavy topic and one that um, I think we're very much still always going to be healing through. And that is eating disorders, disordered eating, and how that has played a role in our own lives and our healing journeys, but also how it's affected our sister relationships. So we know that this is a really hard topic to talk about. And, um, I think especially as survivors ourselves, we're going to just be really open and honest about our experiences. And so just a little bit of a trigger warning on that. Um, of course, we'll share resources on our Tigris page on Instagram, and I'll share it on mine on Instagram and TikTok um, as this episode comes out. But we just want to make sure we give you that heads up. And if you need to take some time, skip some parts or skip this episode altogether, we will not be mad. Do what you got to do to take care of yourself. Um, but yeah, with that, we're going to be talking a little bit about that journey. So um, this is also something we, I don't think I've ever talked about with each other in depth. I think we've always had these small conversations about it, but all three of us together, we haven't talked about. And actually in passing, after we recorded an episode together with me and Amaya, she actually turned to me and she said, I actually didn't know you had an eating disorder. And I was like, oh, awkward, you know, awkward. And a lot of it was because I think, you know, we did grow up feeling pigeonholed in so many parts of our lives by our parents where like one was a hot one, one was a beautiful one, one was the smart one, one was the stupid one. And um, that also pertained to mental health where one was anxious, one was depressed and one had an eating, eating disorder. And Primarily, the one with the eating disorder was Amaya, who was partially hospitalized, and I'll let you tell that story. Um, but yeah, I think that at the same time, um, Amaya and I both struggled with different forms of eating disorders over the last decade or so, 
and Issa, the youngest one of us, had to step into some pretty adult shoes of being a caretaker and the person on suicide watch or the person who had to be in the bathroom supervising me when I took a shower um, at a really, really young age. And we're going to kind of talk through all of that. So maybe to kick off, Amea, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience and kind of what you um, have healed from and are working through now? The whole shebang. Yeah, I think high high level, but enough details that they can get kind of the foundation. Yeah, I mean, I think it starts, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I think that a lot of, maybe, I want to say like immigrant families, but I'll just focus on like Asian American families. There's a lot of, you know, talking about like, okay, clean plate club, right? You like never leave any food on the plate. And me and Nadia still make jokes about, you know, when you move and you, you know, from a different country, you don't have a lot of money, you like eat everything, you know, and we grew up with not a lot of resources. So we were taught to kind of eat everything, finish everything. We watered down our milk when we were younger and we had to apologize if we spilled food, if we left food on our plate. And so we grew up with a kind of like a scarcity mindset, scarcity mindset. Yeah. And, and throughout all the fighting and all the tension and all the drama when we were younger, for me, food was a huge source of comfort. Food and reading. It was always food and reading. If I was, um, I, you know, I, I remember, you know, my earliest memories was like waking up early um, while everyone was asleep so I could go in and like sneak into the fridge and like eat the tops off the watermelons or eat the corners of all the sugar cookies. And um, food was always a huge part of my comfort. Um, and as you know things escalated I think especially right after our parents divorced and separated um, that comfort just took over my entire life and I ended up gaining a ton of weight at a very early age and um, I was clinically obese as my doctor told me little little tiny Amea in third grade I was clinically diagnosed and that I needed to make some lifestyle changes I've always hated working out um it's just basically, I mean, I don't even, it's so hard to explain, right? I was so young, but I ended up having anorexia at like, in like sixth grade, which is crazy. Like you can see it's almost jumbled for me talking, like I'm already getting emotional because it's so hard for me to <laughs> be crying. Well, like, it makes okay. sense that it was jumbled because also eating disorders are like a mental illness. And it's, so like a lot of it is mixed up for you just like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't even expect this to become like an emotional because I am so used to talking about my eating disorder and educating people about it. But it's really hard when I start mapping out how, you know, how does an 11 year old become anorexic? How the fuck does that happen? You know, um, I've struggled with an eating disorder for over half my life now. Uh, you know, I, I in my when I was hospitalized, the first thing that we were taught was we're not allowed to talk about numbers. I don't know if I'm allowed to share here, but, you know, by I was 11, 12 years old, I dropped under, you know, 100 pounds, maybe a lot under 100 terrifying. pounds. Yeah, it was it was really terrifying. But for me, um, and it was a mix of anorexia and bulimia. Yeah. Yeah. What ended up happening for me was, you know, and I think this is kind of a warning for anyone out there. You know, I was actively trying to lose weight. I was forced to be a part of the swim team. I was forced to work out a lot by my by my mother and by, you know, doctors. And it was so hard for me to this day. I hate working out. Am I ranting? No, no, no. Um, it was really hard to work out. I ended up getting sick and I could not keep my food down. And during that time, I ended up dropping a ton of weight. And I was like, this is my easy way out. I went back to school and like the first day I got back, I remember the boy I had a massive crush on was like, you know, looking good, Amaya. And I was in seventh grade. Yeah. And and uh, by that time I was I was completely hooked. And then I oscillated between anorexia nervosa and bulimia 
binge purge um, for the next couple of years. And it remained hidden for I, for years. Four or five years. Four or five years. Most people. <laughs> yeah, for most people. And I think Issa has her own perspective because she was for a long time the only person who knew that I was doing things with food and with my body that I really shouldn't. Um, and for me, like, I can barely wake up before noon nowadays, but by early middle school and throughout early high school, I was waking up at like four or 5 a.m. to work out. I was planning my food. I somehow convinced my mom to let me be in charge of cooking everyone breakfast, packing everyone lunch and like planning our dinners and what we bought um, for the dinner table. So then I had complete control. And then I could tell also everyone that I already ate you know, while I was cooking so that I didn't have to eat dinner. Like there's a lot of all these strategies that we learn and that major trigger warning on this because I think that it's it's hard to talk about eating disorders without also having a fear that you're giving someone ideas. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's there's so much I could just yeah, and keep going. But it kind of culminated when you were freshman in high school and – um, had to be admitted into like partial hospitalization. I wish it was. I was a sophomore. Sophomore, um, and by that time, it had progressed to a very intense amount. I was, um, you know, using Jergens self tanning lotion in secret, that um, so that I would cover up the fact that I was so pale. I was had extremely thin hair. I was fainting in between classes. I was skipping class. I was skipping classes to go work out. Like it was, it was really bad and. Um, it got to the point when, you know, I looked in the mirror and I was like, if I don't do something about this, like, I'm going to die. Um, and I asked my mom if I if she would help me. And I actually ended up in very Okamoto fashion. I signed up so dramatic. I signed up to do like a moth talk, cocoon talk. And I planned out an entire 10 minute talk about kind of coming out about my eating disorder and I told my whole school that I have an eating disorder and then I dropped the bomb like two days later I sent a mass school-wide email that was like so I'm leaving for a semester um and I'm gonna go be you know join a partial hospitalization program and I sent them a link to my program and a bunch of links about you know the whole school Okay, to so my this class. This is what we were talking about last episode, where I transferred to that school. Yeah, yeah. So I dropped <laughs> a lot of. You told the whole name. student body. I told at least my class. I think. Oh wow. I literally sent a mass email because you know we went to a really small school. It's it tiny. was super tiny. My graduate class was seventy four kids, and so if someone goes missing for a day, if someone everybody leaves, knows, everyone knows, right? And I think um, my motivation at fifteen years old. Um, yeah, 15 years old was to just get ahead of the game. Um, and I knew that, you know, people were already like finding out that I was like at Cartini, which is an amazing program. Hated it while I was there, but completely changed my life. Um, and I left school for four or five months. And and you didn't take time off or you did take time off? I took time off. From school. And, and, you know, I had the immense privilege. In retrospect, I wish I had taken the year off and redone my sophomore year. Um, completely. I think it's completely valid, super important to take time off, you know, mental health. I think that, you know, our system kind of pushes this timeline. Our society pushes this timeline, you know, graduate at 18, get to college, whatever. But um, I think that a year off would have been incredibly important for me to reset. And I ended up having to take a gap year to do that anyway. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my gap year after I graduated was doing recon about, you know, how do I learn how to eat on my own? Because I did not take a year off. Um, at the same time, I was incredibly lucky. Lucky I was not in the public school system. 
Um, and what that meant was Catelyn Gable did make crazy exceptions for me. And when I got back to school midway through the spring semester, they did not ask me to make up work. Um, I was super behind. There's a lot of holes in my education from that year, um, but I was able to graduate on time. Yeah, and I think what was also powerful about it is after you sent that email, there were so many other students yeah. who yeah. came out about having eating disorders at the same school. Oh my god, I just totally got shivers. Yeah, after yeah. me, there were it was just us. You and going to the same program at my specific program, just just <laughs> the dominoes started to fall, and literally, I think there are four or five girls in my in the years after me while I was still at that school who ended up at Cartini. So I feel like a lot of your and again, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of your disordered eating tendencies were kind of motivated by one wanting control and then also kind of this body image thing right which is like being told you were clinically obese and also wanting to fit in socially yeah and and there there are layers right like I could again there's so much to unpack because there's so much going on but what you know a lot I think just going back, like it wasn't even just finding comfort in eating, right? Like for me, putting on weight was very much in reaction to the fact that Nadia got so much sexual attention from our biological father because of the way that her body was developing and her body looked. And as a confused baby, right? Like I was like six, seven years old, like so young. I I don't even want to say it. I had the feelings of jealousy, you know, the kernels of jealousy there, but also like the kernels of knowing what was happening was wrong and gross. I didn't want to be a part of it and putting on weight in the exact, you know, reaction to somebody who did not have a lot of weight on them. Um, And you put in a lot of weight on my prepubescent body was like a layer of protection. Right. Mm. I'm not going to get touched. Right. I'm not going to things aren't going to happen that I don't want, you know, seeking ownership. And I think that a lot of people who develop eating disorders, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, especially, right, um, anyone can have an eating disorder. Um, a lot of the people who kind of go back and talk about their motivation, so much of it is about control. Um, and for me, that control was an attempt to take control over multiple facets of my life, whether it was my father or my social life or the way that I felt in you know comparison to my older sister's body or feeling unattractive you know at a middle school where I felt incredibly unattractive as kind of like an overweight artsy moody Asian girl yeah and Issa where were you in in kind of a man's journey because I know you were very present as well um well, when you said that everyone was asleep when you're stealing cookies or making food, and not everyone was asleep, like, I have an obsession with pastries and a healthy one because when you were up at 4 or 5 a.m., like, making breads and cookies and cupcakes, I was usually, like, the taster. So, like, I grew, like, I kind of had a healthy relationship with food because I feel like when you were going through your eating disorder, like, extreme mass production of cookies and stuff like that as the youngest I was like oh this is so cool (laughs) like I have all this endless like access to pastries and goodies and stuff like that but then it was when I saw you kind of running between the kitchen and the bathroom and I was like "Mm, something's up and then I would catch you yeah I would catch Amaya throwing up or 
Amaya would come back to the kitchen with vomit on her mouth or I would smell it. And there are several instances that we've had talked about this in therapy a little bit, but like I would catch Amaya and she'd get really violent about me not telling anyone or specifically slamming my fingers in like the bathroom door because I like wouldn't let her be alone in the bathroom. And like I would try to I would try to, you know, like keep the door open um, and you'd slam it shut on my fingers. And so there are multiple instances like that. And then when we went out in public, I would kind of just take the role because I didn't really know what was happening, but I knew that, you know, I needed to help you. And I just didn't know how because I was so young. Um, And so I would just kind of always tag along with you to the bathroom. But at a lot of times when you were throwing up and I was trying to stop you, you would get very angry and violent. And Nadia, I at a very early age, I saw your eating disorder as well, just because I kind of caught on like after I ate, I didn't really want to throw up. And so I was like, why are my sisters throwing up? And then you started getting extremely pale and I would literally, there's a running joke in our family that Amaya just falls asleep everywhere. That when we get home and we're taking off our shoes. We have several photos because we because our family thought it was a joke that Amaya would just fall asleep on the floor or that we would come home from school and like off of the bus and Amaya would just fall asleep immediately and wake up at 5 a.m. and then do her cooking. And so like this was kind of like a running joke that, oh, Amaya's nocturnal and things like that. But I at a very early age caught on that Amaya was literally passing out. So like Amaya was so faint, like so dehydrated or so hungry that she would just fall asleep and literally pass out because I wouldn't be able to wake her up. And so with all of these things kind of culminating, I early on saw that Nadia was also always exhausted. And so I wasn't always able to, you know, go to the bathroom with you like, like Amanda did. And I don't actually really know what eating disorder type you have, but, but I very much always just saw that you were having a hard time with your body image and a lot of times I tried to like intervene like I did with Amaya but you were always just out of the house because you were at ballet practice you were at speech and debate you were working out you were at the gym which was you know what I realized is because you were like exercising stuff like that. Issa do you think you ever had a like a struggle with relationship with food or do you feel like you were always good on it? No I I have always had a really healthy relationship with food um and I think the only times that I've struggled with food but I've very been whenever I've been in a hold on the only times that I've had kind of a conflict with food is when I'm with you guys and I have to take your food away from you or I have to eat your plate because I can see that Amaya is triggered and wants to finish hers and then I know that she'll go throw up or I see that Nadia is triggered and she'll hunch over and be stuffing her face with the rest of her with the rest of the food because you don't you have a scarcity mindset still and don't want to leave anything on the plate like for example we went to and we went to Indiana when we got disowned and Agun made us a a pot of everything we had eaten that weekend like he just put literally all the scraps on our plate and just put it into a pot and boiled it for our last meal. 
There were salmon bones in it. There were potatoes in it. It was water. Apples. Apples. We had like pieces of white bread in there. Soaking bread. It was quite literally the color of puke. It was puke. It was a mixture of foods that have been digested and like were on our plates. And so at the last meal, he put a bunch of scoops into our bowls and I was very much like, I'm not touching that. I would rather fly eight hours home and like, you know, be really, really hungry, like then touch that and literally throw up. And I turned to Amaya and Nadia and I saw that Amaya was literally gagging. And when Amaya gags, I get really scared that Amaya is going to throw up. And so when Amaya throws up, it's kind of difficult to Triggering. snap her out of a, you know, triggered state. And so I saw Amaya literally gagging. So I had to literally fight her bowl away from her. And then I saw Nadia downing this <laughs> literal vomit soup, downing. downing this vomit soup down her throat because she didn't want to leave anything left in the bowl. And so I had to like fight her bowl away from her. And then I stuffed it in my mouth being like, you don't need to eat it. I will eat it, which I've had to do on several occasions. Oh, Lisa. Like literally yesterday at dinner when we were eating pasta. Like, so my relationship with food is extremely like I'm healthy with food. I'm good with food. But when I do kind of overeat or when I have to think about like, oh, like tomorrow I got to work out a little extra is when I have to, like, protect you guys from your triggers. That's what I was wondering is, like, I feel like food is so coupled with body dysmorphia for me. Yeah, I yeah, don't, same. I don't so really coupled. have that just because I kind of think of food as, like, something yummy. <laughs> I think this has a very healthy, like, abundance yeah. mindset, which yeah. is, which I also think kind of goes back to the fact that a lot of the trauma a man I have from a scarcity mindset, you know, living through these yeah. more times when we were facing more poverty, we were old enough to understand like the concept of money. Right. And I think that Issa, yeah. you have that too, but I think we're so young that you saw the, what we were going through, but maybe didn't understand like why it was happening in terms of my background. And I know that like, we haven't really talked about this intensely. And I think a lot of it was because I grew up always thinking I'm not the one with an eating disorder. Amaya has an eating disorder. I don't know what I have. I know that I just don't like my body. Um, but mine is very rooted in scarcity mindset. Like, and I don't even think it, and I, a little bit of body dysmorphia for me, it was like, I grew up at a really young age, always assigning bites of food to dollar values um, all the way from, I think having both of my grandmas around who would be like, so yummy. What are you eating? That's $5. That's $10, $30 food, $30. Like I always assigned the value of food, um, of that. And I think it was also not calories, not calories. It was money for me. It was like, this cost this much, this cost this much. And growing up, like we, even though we had more stable life as like, you know, young elementary school, we weren't well off in the fact that like it was still very much like we had no money left at the end of the month. Like it was spent. Right. And for me, you know, with mom, we had a young mom who was honestly my age when she had me who would also tell me about like how lucky I was to have food. Right. And it was to the point where if we spilled milk, it was sorry, cow. There are people, you know, in Africa or there are people, you know, who the people we see on the street who don't have food, you're so lucky to have food. So I think for me at a really young age, I understood food to be of monetary value. And when we 
moved out to Portland, Oregon and I was nine. And I think I was old enough to realize, okay, we went from having enough money to not enough money at all right now, where every time we went grocery shopping, mom would be so stressed, cards would get declined. And it was so embarrassing. And we had to put back food, like not get the food that we wanted to. Mom was always like looking for coupons and everything so that we would have food. So for me, then I had a lot of stress about affording food, right? Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save money on your insurance? Of course you would. After all, who wouldn't love a great deal, right? And when it comes to great rates on insurance for all of the things in your life, GEICO can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners, condo, or renters coverage. You could save even more with a special discount when you bundle your coverages. Plus, add the easy-to-use GEICO mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And choosing to switch to GEICO becomes an easy choice. Switch to and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. This show is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition. I think most of us agree that in a functioning democracy, the winner should be determined by the voters. Well, that almost didn't happen in 2020. Now, extremists are working to intimidate and replace nonpartisan election workers with quote-unquote yes-men who might reject election results. The only thing that will stop them is us. We've partnered with the grassroots pro-democracy organization, Represent Us, to give you the tools you need to protect free and fair elections. Learn more and get involved. Visit represent.us pod to learn more. And I think that a man at the time who's eating so much and cooking so much, which I didn't understand, yeah. and it would make me really upset when a man would cook cookies because I would be like, we don't need this. Nobody's eating this. Nobody needs to be eating this. Like, I always was really stressed about it from a monetary perspective. So very scarcity mindset. And, you know, I remember like I simultaneously was so athletic. I was doing hours of dance and ballet every day. I was playing multiple sports in high school. I was like, I did um, tennis. I did track. I did baseball. I did ballet. I was never home. I was always working. And again, like the way that I coped with trauma was like, I left the house and, you know, a lot of my trauma was with my parents. And so for me, I coped by, by like working, working nonstop, working out nonstop, but then not nourishing my body, not because I was stressed about it, but because I was like, I, we can't afford this. And if I eat this granola bar at home, someone else, like my sisters, aren't going to be able to have it. And I know that, that this Z bar, you know, Z yeah. bar and cliff bars that my mom would splurge on, like I would say in my mind, oh, those are like $3 each. So I'm not going to eat that. And then that scarcity mindset around food is also what led me to shoplifting, which was like yeah. being so hungry and then feeling like I needed to like steal a fucking cheese um a lot of string cheese baby bell cheeses as a man I joke like I was just hungry and I felt a lot of guilt around taking food from our own fridge and um I also think that I I did struggle with my body especially doing ballet where I was told a lot in the dance world that I didn't have the body for ballet because my chest was too big. My arms were too, were big. I was too heavy to be lifted, um, because I was like 120 pounds. And so for me, even though I was pretty underweight, like on the scheme of what I was comparing myself to, I felt like really not where I was supposed to be. And I think similarly, 
I got a lot of attention for my body, right? Both from our dad who thought that I was really sexy to um, I was really pretty violently sexually assaulted when I was 16. And a lot of it was kind of made as an excuse to me of, oh, I couldn't help it because you were so hot. You were so sexy. So it was a lot of mixed messaging where I felt like I was being rewarded. And that was a positive thing in terms of what I looked like. And then I started doing a lot of um, laxatives because I couldn't poop. And uh, and then also yeah. doing a lot of energy um, pills yeah. that were weight loss pills. Which so, I would steal your laxatives. Yeah, I yeah. shoplifted at a young age a lot of like green tea extracts, which yeah. are essentially yep. pills that or pills or gummies that make you have a lot more energy because it's caffeine, but also are, are marketed as weight loss pills. So it was like that coupled with laxatives, coupled with wor- working out, being exhausted all the time, not sleeping, having severe insomnia. Um, but at the same time, binge eating whenever there was free food. So for me, again, not feeling like we didn't have enough food. So when I saw food, it was downing, downing food. And I honestly had that mentality until last year when I went to rehab or a, a year and a half ago because I was on speaking tour. So I was either at dining halls where the food felt free at Harvard Mm -hmm. and I was eating until I was like so full or I was um, not eating when I was traveling um, because I didn't want to buy airplane food. And then when there was free food at an event, I was downing food. And that was like, I didn't ever care what it tasted like. It was just like any food. But I really don't think I ever labeled it as disordered eating or an eating disorder and officially it's it's basically like binge mentality binge mentality but about everything like binge on um food on like I don't really do things in moderation you know like if I'm gonna do yoga I'm gonna become a yoga instructor it's like everything kind of in an extreme which is part of BPD too and like BPD is also feeling empty and filling myself with food so it's a mixture of a lot of things and I think this kind of addictive personality but I think that for me I never labeled it as an eating disorder because that word always was what Amea had. And to be honest, like I was such an unsupportive sister when Amea was going through Cartini because I think I was also really triggered by a lot of guilt because the way I was told Amea had an eating disorder was Amea has an eating disorder and a lot of it is rooted because of you. And that's what I heard. And whether or not anyone will admit or say that that is what was said, that is what I heard. And I know like even in our family, like I remember hearing that like oh when I was younger I would give Amea my food to make her fat and like I don't have any recollection of that but I know I'm not questioning that other people that you that happened or anything like that you told me that but like I don't remember that happening and things like that so like I think that for me I remember I was called into Cartini as part of Amea's family therapy and I was so angry and so defensive Mm. because I was like this feels so unfair like why am I being told that I gave my sister an eating disorder and I had so much guilt and so I feel like for me, the word eating disorder was always like, that's not what I have. That's what Amea has. So I'm fine. Like, I don't have an issue. Yeah. And I was really in denial. And then I got to rehab where it was like everything I did was monitored. What I ate, um, there were literal locks on the cabinets. There were very strict eating times. Um, you know, I was very clear on what was portioned. And I think I realized that I had eating disorder when I knew that there was food in the fridge and it was behind a lock and I would throw a tantrum because I was so upset and I felt so hungry, but I was not hungry. I had just eaten, but I convinced myself and I feel like I am really hungry and I still have this, right? Where like, if I'm left alone and there's a lot of snacks in the fridge, like I used to get up at night and go eat food until Henry kind of helped me work through that. But also like, I have a lot of real anxiety when there's leftovers. I can't throw things away even if I'm not hungry and there's food left over on the plate, like at brunch today, 
I'm like, I will eat it. Even if I'm full and I don't want it, I will eat it. If it's two things of food, I also can't leave food on the table. Like if it's touched the table, I will eat it off the table. It's like, for me, it's still a food waste thing and a money thing. This is just like, I hear you talking and it's just kind of like everything you do. Like, I feel like, yeah, like I I do that too. Mm -hmm. When we go on family vacations. It's not something we've ever talked about. So it's very weird hearing you talk about these things. Like, oh, I did this when we were younger. I did this. This is like, those are all things. I did, but I, I didn't know that you were also doing those. I did. And he said, I was, yeah, I but I, I, I mean, it's weird lots. even hearing you talk about like the athlete things, which by the way, it's like swimming, wrestling, ballet, swimming. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's like the top eating disorder sports. Um, and you're bringing back so many memories of mine because I think for whenever people ask me about my eating disorder, I just like draw blank because one, there's a lot of trauma there, but also like I feel like my brain was like so emaciated at that point that I quite literally have like major gaps in my memory yeah but well yeah. dissociation too I think a lot of my eating is not conscious eating but I remember the, yeah. <laughs> the hard parts I'm also I was also just like when you're talking I was thinking about the fact that what we completely left out was that the height of my eating disorder um which was like seventh eighth grade was the same year that we were legally homeless and it was, you know, just talking about the scarcity and the money. And I would, I was counting calories, but also like I've in a lot of my like stealing food, which I would then go to the Fred Meyers bathroom, eat in the bathroom and then purge right after was like, like kind of around this whole thing that like my mom was really into this, like Michael Phelps diet and like the whole, like I was a competitive swimmer at the time. And like Michael Phelps eats like five to 10,000 calories a day or something. And like, that's how much I was eating. And my mom was like, how is she so skinny? Like, you must be working out so much. You know, I was swimming six hours a day. Like, I wasn't home till like 10 p.m. And like, I was basically consuming so much food that my mom was spending to like support my like swimming that was going completely down the drain, which is why I still, you know, struggle with buying food with I, I know Nadia does too. It's so hard to go into a freaking Trader Joe's and spend five dollars on like a piece of meat because I'm like so used to wasting that money and then well I think about the question a lot about why I don't have an eating disorder and you two do and it's interesting when you were talking about the timeline or with what mom said to you when you were growing up the timeline of our lives kind of line up where my formative years of learning how to eat and learning how to portion my plate at dinner and breakfast was was when mom was working a lot and mom had six jobs or something like that. So she wasn't home a lot. And so a lot of times I had to portion my own meals and kind of had to eat when I'm hungry or I had to eat when I wanted a snack. So like I learned that on my own a lot just because mom really wasn't there like during my middle school years. Um, Which turned out to be a good thing for you. And so, yeah. And so, well, in some ways. Yeah. Um, but and then another thing was that during those years, I also had to attend Amaya's Cartini um, meal meetings. Which, like, Nadia, you were not at. And I wasn't so, allowed to go. Um, Nadia wasn't allowed to go. And so I... Because I was told I was a trigger. I was a visual yeah. trigger for you. So, yeah. but I mean, I, I, I'm like trying to be like, it's hard because I don't want to get into like a comparative, like angry discussion of this. But like at that time, like we were completely opposed to each other and like no, you yeah, that's, that's, absolutely that's what I'm saying. So that's like what I'm saying. I took away I, my eating disorder and possibly this like took away from your college apps 
my eating disorder and partial hospitalization wasn't intense enough for you. You know, you told me you wanted like no, I'm not. So, angry. You told Amanda, me you this is me why to, Nadia like, wasn't allowed. Like, it's like, no, that's why I wasn't allowed to go. Um, Nadia wasn't allowed to go, so I had to go, and so I had to be in the meetings where this woman, this therapist, was talking at me. What? How old was I? Like ten? Ten. I was ten. ten Twelve. And I was sitting in Cartini with like a notepad 13. and a pen, writing down like what portions of meat you needed, what portions of vegetables you needed, how many cups yeah. to serve you. I had to learn how to translate ounces into or pounds into ounces and things like that. And so like at a very young age, I nutritionally, like scientifically knew what portions someone needed to have to yeah. survive and someone needed to have to be healthy and how to recover from eating eating disorder. So I was very conscious about what I was eating and what I was putting on my plate because I was always doing it for you too, like growing up. And so, um, or I was always doing it for Amaya and, um, and like Nadia, I knew you had an eating disorder, like the whole, like our whole lives. And so the only thing is that I would constantly like talk to my mom about like, mom like Nadia is not supposed to be eating this many laxatives like you are spending way too much money on poop tea <laughs> like yeah. no one needs this many laxatives so like at a very early age I was so conscious of okay like my sister like everyone jokes the third sister is the least fucked up because the two old two older ones like fuck up for them but like I was so conscious about what to how to portion my plate I was so conscious about how much to work out because Nadia, I never saw you because you were at, at all these things about working out like your body and things like that. And I grew up additionally having to kind of reassure, like I had, I couldn't say the word skinny. I couldn't say the word fat. I couldn't, you full. know, say, I, couldn't, I wasn't allowed to say Numbers. I'm full. I wasn't allowed to say I'm hungry. I wasn't allowed to say like, you know, you I want sugar. I wasn't allowed to say you look healthy. God, no. I wasn't allowed to say all of these things. And like my mom and I, I remember without you two, like had to sit down and list all of these things out and like write down these phrases that I had to say that I had to memorize to like tell Amaya when she was about to throw up. Or I had to memorize these ways to kind of comfort you two when you were in a triggered state. And so like I had to do all of this work to understand eating disorders at such a young age that like I didn't get one. <laughs> like yeah, I was so no. conscious of it. Um, but yeah, I just kind of didn't have time to have an eating disorder because yeah. the food that I was eating was your portion. Food, I, I do want, you know. I, I mean, I don't want to blame myself for someone else's eating disorder, but I also do want to say like, I think one, so much hurt there and like so much like love you. But also like, I think I'm thinking about how, you know, my ex-boyfriend from high school who my high school sweetheart who was also like a model so there's like a whole lot there I remember we had like a really deep conversation midway through our relationship where he was like I have an eating disorder now and it's your fault and you gave me an eating disorder because I'm surrounded by you and like watching you eat food like makes me have an eating disorder and this is your fault and like you bestowed me with this like lifelong thing which you know I tell everyone like once you have it you have it you know, like yeah. this is it sucks. Like every time I have girls reach out to me all the time, like you're so open about it. And like I'm like, first of all, I'm not recovered. This is a struggle with every meal, every, you know, every single meal. Um, So it's like once you have it, I'm like, I'm so sorry. But it's it's almost like comforting for me to hear that, too, because I'm like, I think I still blame myself a lot for like 
like when I'm around people, I feel really scared to like talk about my eating disorder or like show traits as open as I am about it. And as much comfort I give to other people with eating disorders because I have that like, <laughs> this is well, yeah, your it fault. Takes, it takes a team of people to heal from something like that. And I will say our family is, while little, we are extremely privileged in that we have so much love. Like yeah. we have so much love in between just the four of us. And additionally with Henry, like, like you said, Henry would catch you. Like I have on multiple occasions texted Henry occasions like you were coming home from Indiana and I was like sent Henry just texting like a uh, trigger moment watch Nadia's eating time it out and Henry and I would have to talk about that same with like your boyfriend like I've had yeah. multiple conversations with your guys's external support systems totally um about and- how to support someone through that and it can be quite exhausting for someone supporting another person with the eating disorder like I mean, I retook a, I retook a, a year yeah. of high school. I'm in my fifth year of high school because my eighth grade freshman and sophomore year were kind of learning how to reintegrate myself into a social life where I didn't always have to be watching someone's weight, watching someone's food, watching mm-hmm. someone's, you know, like have, I didn't have to be on suicide watch. Yeah. So like my whole weekends I wasn't allowed to go out or I wasn't allowed to have sleepovers because when my mom was working three jobs um to like you know put food on the table like that we had to portion put portion food on the table I had to stay home and be on suicide watch for Amaya Amaya. and so like kind of for support systems like learning how to reintegrate into a world where you know someone healing from an eating disorder can be a lot. Yeah, support systems um, are yeah. so... Yeah, support systems are so it's, important. It's and, a, I mean, I feel like it's obviously, like, I want to be like, it's so doable. Like, if you're sick and you're struggling, like, you can do it, you can do it. But, like, honestly, like, from my perspective, I'm like, fuck no. Like, I feel... It just, it's a lot of work. I, it's so much work, mental work, but also, like, you need people there for you and you need people to catch you. You need people to watch you. Like, you need that. At least I needed that surveillance. And, like, to this day, I still need that, you know, discussion. My college boyfriend, um, I was just, like, thinking, like, you're, like, you need support and talking to college boyfriend or um, Henry, like... I almost want to like be like I need to give a shout out for anyone listening who you know has a significant other who has you know bulimia or an eating disorder or they have it themselves to push themselves to have that conversation you know about it and be open what do you need like especially in college you know there's a lot of people drinking a lot of people getting really drunk and there's this term that I learned literally last year like pull trig where when you're so drunk that you force yourself to throw up to get better TC tactical tender hmm that's what it's nickname. TC tactical tender. Well, I, I just I'd never I, you know, I'm like a child call, so I never really like knew that. But I started drinking like literally last year and I caught my college boyfriend on multiple occasions, like pull his friends aside and be like, you can't say that to a because they would be like, just pull trig, just pull trig or like, like make yourself throw up. Yeah. Or like if somebody was in the bathroom, like puking, he'd like pull me out of the bathroom. And like it's those little gestures that like. I think oh my god like I appreciate so much like because they just like reminded me of my own past and like reminded me like oh that would be really triggering for me if I like threw up right now so now I have to sit down and just be in my mess you know um but support systems are so important and like having people there for you to like you know curb your your triggers and unfortunately for me it was my baby sister yeah for most of my life I mean I think that like 
I mean, Issa, you had to grow up really fast in that. And I also think that, I mean, eating disorders have played such a intense and challenging role in our own family dynamic. Like, Amea, as you said, I think that even when we talk about eating disorders, like, I, I realize that we have this anger at each other about well, it because so, like, I mean I already felt it like when you were talking yeah. about yours I was like fuck you I like mean, I think, fuck you yeah no, I think that we can all sense it too it's like I think when I talk about it there is this sort of like but you weren't there for me and then yeah. and you made it worse and I think for me like I have the anger like I felt like nobody was there for me because there was no focus like obviously like in everything that I was dealing with, it was like, well, why would you have that issue? If you look like that, you're succeeding, you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you, you, you know, you don't, you don't have that. Amea has that. And so I think that for me, like we obviously have, I think that's always going to be a part of our lives that we're working through and a part of the anger that we're working through Absolutely. too. And I think that it's like, I also think it's a reminder that everybody's healing journey and everybody's disordered eating like looks different, you know? And I think that that's something that I really had to learn was like, just because mine doesn't look like my sister's or it wasn't to the same extreme, you know, it isn't less valid. And I think also the vocabulary or needing to label is something also that I had to work through was just like, I'm just going to work on my relationship with food. And I think that for me, it's very much linked to like also, uh, like healthy relationship with money, which is obviously mm -hmm. something I am working through because of the manipulation I experienced with dad Absolutely. around money. And I think it's something that like, we're all gonna continue working through. Right. And I think that, you know, I'm proud of where we are right now. Right. We've spent the, the weekend enjoying really good food. Um, Issa's caught our triggers when she needed to and get us like, yeah. you know, snacks when we were hungry. But like reminder, that is a long term goal. Yeah. Like, I am so lucky to be in like recovery right now, but it is chronic. And I think I remind that for anyone, almost every single person I talk to, especially if they're, you know, a girl like is like, oh, I have an eating disorder. Yeah. This is or I think I have an eating disorder. I definitely have an or eating know disorder. someone who does. Yeah. And 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 they are chronic. Like, it's not like, oh, I had one. It's like, no, like <laughs> these are things that are stuck with you. They take different forms. They come in and out of your lives. And that's not something to just accept and let it happen. But it is something to be aware of. Yeah. And I also think it's like, Issa, you were so fucking strong for having to do that at such a young age and like be exposed to that and like have these tough conversations at literally 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And I also think it says a lot about the relationship between you two because Issa did bear the brunt of a lot of, I'm not going to say violence, but I think like aggression because I think we all had a lot of aggression. Yeah. And, um, you know, it definitely took a lot for you. Like you also, like Amea, missed school and had to redo a year and worked through a lot and I think that in many ways when you first started dating also well, ended up relationships have to redo a year I chose to Choose, redo chose, a year. To, <laughs> chose to redo a year to get the most out of high school yeah. but I also think that it says a lot that you then had to learn how to have relationships where you weren't a caretaker yeah, yeah. and where the person you were with wasn't dealing with so much of a we're not attracted well, that's to that. another conversation. Yeah. The people that I chose to surround myself after you guys left. Yeah. Because I didn't know how to function where I didn't have yeah. to be a caretaker. So kind of learning how to, you know, yeah. not recreate trauma, trauma situations. Yeah. And I think that like, again, Amea, what you said, which is that it's not something you're recovered from. It's a recovery process and it can look different for everybody. And I, I think at the same time, like support network is everything. And i think that the fact that we're sitting here having an open conversation when like I don't think we've ever talked about it no. all together this in depth 
And I'm really proud of the fact that like we didn't yell at each other because I think that like sometimes we do feel that. And I think it's a really big moment for us as sisters to be able to have this conversation. And I'm really proud of us for that. And for all of you listening, again, um, please reach out to people if you need support. We'll make sure to share resources to hotlines for support, but also just yeah. different opportunities for support. Um, and we'll make sure that we link all of those as well. Um, and I know that there's some incredible organizations doing really great Beautiful. work around eating disorders and awareness around it um, and have resources if you're a support network as well. Um, this is actually a topic that's been heavily requested from Tigris audience to talk about. This is the first time I'm talking about it and I really want to hear feedback and everything. Um, and I hope that this has just been a helpful space. And I hope that if anything, this can just assure you or friends that you have that you're not alone in this and that there is hope in working through it and that you're that being in the recovery process is something that you don't have to be ashamed of. And little steps are still yeah. steps. You know, yeah. Text that hotline. Like there's yeah. so many peer to peer hotlines um, that are so amazing across the board, especially for ED to suicide to literally anything um, that were incredible support network for me. Yeah. And with that, we're going to sign off. Thank you so much for listening. And I, yeah, sending love to all of you and just really love you both. Love you. Love love you. you. Bye, y'all. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.